WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Did you know that in most countries, once you've inhabited a piece of land or in a building for a certain number of years without action by the owner, you have the right to become its legal owner? To tell us more about this, we're here with Sarah Jacobson. Sarah, may you please introduce yourself and your research for us? Absolutely. I'd love to. I'm Sarah Jacobson. I'm a seventh year doctoral student in the Department of History, and I study what we call squatting. Squatting refers to what you mentioned, which is taking over land and, in my context, apartments without having a rental contract or formal permission to do so. And I look at migrants who squatted or occupied because they felt they had no other recourse. They were trying to provide a roof for their family or for themselves and did not have the ability to do so. Thanks for joining us this morning, Sarah. Squatting is a term I've never actually heard of before, so thank you for introducing that to us. When you're studying this phenomenon called squatting, are you looking in, for example, the East Lansing area, or are you looking in a more general, larger area within the United States? That's a great question. I actually concentrate on the 1970s in what was West Germany and Italy. So the population that I'm most interested in are Southern Italians. Southern Italy has traditionally been economically less well-off. It's primarily agriculturally based and hasn't had a lot of the same investment as Northern Italy. After the Second World War, Southern Italian migrants moved north in search for work. So I compared two different cities, Turin in Italy and Frankfurt in the former West Germany. And the cool thing about doing so is most of the time when we think about migrants, we think of immigrants, so those who come from a different country into our own country. But by looking at migrants both within Italy and outside of Italy, I show how they can still be subjected to discrimination and receive pushback or stereotypes that prohibited them from receiving housing in their own nation state and as immigrants in a foreign nation state. It intrigues me that they were experiencing discrimination and pushback in their own place. Since this was on the other side of the world decades ago, how are you able to study this and where do you get your data from? So first of all, the reason that Southern Italians were discriminated in their own country is if you can remember your American history and think back to Civil War and the difference between the industrial North and the more agrarian South, and of course, some of those racial stereotypes, you have similar sort of phenomena happening in Italy. So Southerners are called Toroni, which is this derogatory term that can be translated maybe into redneck. So they were viewed as tied to the land, as being peasants, a little bit backward, and potentially even lazy. They had a lot of kids. They were viewed to be noisy and dirty. So a lot of these stereotypes that you can maybe pick up on from other contexts, whereas Northerners viewed themselves as industrious, more progressive. So there's, there's this huge divide in Italy, which is why they face similar forms of discrimination in their very own country. And then your second question about where I gather my data and research. Uh, as a historian, a lot of what we do is we work with what we call primary sources. 
So these are our sources that are produced in the moment we're studying, from letters to uh, diary entries are traditionally viewed as primary sources. In my case, a lot of these groups in the 1970s who were squatting or occupying They would produce flyers and pamphlets and distribute them throughout their neighborhoods and communities to try and garner some support from their neighbors. And a lot of these documents are housed at archives. So historians, we love to go to the archives and do what we call documentary analysis. So I went to Bologna, to Turin, to Milan, and a lot of these archives were independent, not-for-profit. So they were still run by political activists today. And some of them, they literally would just tell me to go upstairs and there'd be boxes that weren't sorted or curated at all. And I would go through and just comb through all of these papers that had been left behind, usually by impersonal collections. And then to understand how the city responded, I went to city archives and I would look at the collection of different mayors, of city council meetings, etc. That's really awesome that you were able to go visit different cities within Italy and Germany to read through these different archives. While you were visiting, did you happen to meet any of the possible descendants of those people that were squatting back then? And did you find that their perspectives changed since the 1970s? So the 1970s weren't actually that long ago. So some of the people I met had themselves participated in the squatting or housing occupations. For instance, I was able to meet with a woman who still lives in the same house that she occupied over 50 years ago. And at the end of our interview, she told me, I fought for this house for 50 years and nothing's going to make me move. Wow, it's surprising to me that she was fighting for 50 years for that house. Legally speaking, how long does someone need to squat in a location until the government can recognize that they own it? That's dependent upon each nation's laws. So in some areas, it's 12 years. In others, it's more. But those laws that I reference are only if the landowner, the landlord, doesn't take action against you. So what she meant by fighting for 50 years is... Even though I'm 100% positive she now has a formal contract, they still live in a neighborhood that they feel is abandoned. So their streets aren't plowed, their trash isn't taken out. So I think what she means is she's still fighting for some of those basic rights and basic social services that we take for granted. It's a shame that it's so difficult for people to figure out a place where they can live at and that they have to resort to this idea of squatting. You talked a little bit about how there are different mayoral and council meetings where this issue was brought up. What were some of the initial attitudes towards squatting and have they changed at all? So it was actually really dependent on which political party was in power. So in West Germany, for instance, in Frankfurt, there was a more left-leaning coalition that was, that was in power at the time. So they initially responded quite well and were trying to find ways to accommodate or help the occupiers. Then students and other, let's call them activists, started squatting as well, and that led to a lot of police conflict and violence in the streets. So this really soured the perception of housing occupations until it came to differentiating or making a difference between who's squatting because they're doing so for more political reasons and who's squatting because they really need it. 
And the same is true in Italy, but the conversation was more who deserves public housing and who is acting illegally. It was more of these debates about illegality instead of social need versus political in nature. I guess I shouldn't be that surprised that it depended on what political party was in power at that time. It feels pretty similar here in the United States when it comes to housing issues and housing depravity. You had mentioned the state of West Germany, which got me thinking a little bit about the Cold War. And I'm curious if the Cold War had an impact on how the housing occupation strategies were occurring and what the responses were from the local governments or even state level governments. The Cold War actually had a huge impact on state response. So at this time, domestic terrorist groups are on the rise in both Italy and Germany. So you have bank robberies, kidnappings, and even assassinations. So the word of the day was internal security. And what housing occupations do is they threaten that public security and public order. So city administrations had a really hard time walking this line of, we want to help residents who are in need, but at the same time, this kind of public unrest was perceived as being very dangerous. So it was a very fraught response, and honestly, part of my research shows how governments went back and forth and debated kind of endlessly how they should respond. Right, and Italy and Germany are certainly no exception to the terrorist issue. In fact, in the 1970s, that was also when the United States had seen an all-time high for domestic terrorism, even comparatively to back like in the early 2000s. Yeah, and Sarah, you had just mentioned that these states were treating squatters as domestic terrorists. Why is that? I don't think they necessarily considered them terrorists, but they called squats basically places that could foment domestic rebellion or domestic terrorism. And the issue here is that a lot of those more political squats were were run by students and activists. And this was the same sort of population that was becoming involved in the domestic terrorist movements. And when police would come to try and evict them or clear the squat, there was often conflict in the streets. So Molotov cocktails being thrown about police with their batons. And the press really picked up on this and and termed it a civil war or the street terror in Frankfurt, or would produce these images of students behind barricades, which has a long history, fighting against police with water hoses. So in many ways, it was viewed as dangerous in that it could at least provoke unrest and conflict on the streets. That's interesting, considering the fact that some of these people were citizens of their own country. Could you talk a little bit about what differences were observed between migrants and how immigrants were treated when it comes to squatting? So prior to squatting, one of the main contributions of my research is to show how they were discriminated against in very similar ways. So there would literally be placards in Turin, Italy that said, we don't rent to Southerners. And there'd be placards posted in Frankfurt or other areas of West Germany that would say, we don't rent to foreigners. So in that way, I try to show that there's actually this similar way of being discriminated against. Now, when they actually start squatting, the difference is that those in Italy are citizens. So they technically view themselves as having a right to state aid to what we view as the welfare state. Whereas those in West Germany, they're members of the European economic community. 
but they're not technically West German citizens. So what they're arguing for is more of an expansion of social services to apply to residents who may or may not be formal citizens. Specifically in regards to the people who are citizens in these nations, did these nations actually recognize them as citizens and give them aid, for example, like if they had a medical emergency? Yeah, that's a different form of aid. And I think what the Italians in Italy were pointing to is that sorts of services were inequitable. So eventually, in Turin, they did receive public housing. The administration changed to being a more leftist-leaning administration, and they were assigned public housing. A lot of those different examples of discrimination that you talked about in this interview really show just how fear can dictate how people feel about others that they're not familiar with. What are some other forms of discrimination that existed when it came to providing housing for these squatters? What kinds of challenges did they have to undergo? Well, in addition to having landlords unwilling to rent to them, at this point in time, the 1970s, there was a massive amount of housing shortages. So in Turin, this was particularly felt because their population doubled from 1950 to 1960 as all these migrants came north for work, and then it doubled again by 1970. So housing simply could not keep up. And the reason so many people were moving to Turin is if you've heard of the car company Fiat, is they were just exploding during this economic miracle that we talk about in producing a ton of different cars. Similarly, West Germany was hurting for labor during their economic miracle. So as people moved into Frankfurt, which is the other city I study, they also had housing shortages. But the biggest deterrent in Frankfurt is we now know Frankfurt to be this big business center of Europe. But it was just starting in the 70s. So city planners had slated all these downtown areas that previously had a housing that was more affordable and slated them to become these big skyscrapers. So it was literally pushing people from the center to the periphery. And migrants were one of the populations most affected. A housing shortage is a very concerning problem. You said that Frankfurt is now a thriving city. How did the government meet the housing demands of the citizens and the immigrants? So this question gets a lot into housing policy. And the big difference and why I say that Frankfurt was more easily able to transition was that they instigated what we call housing subsidies. So instead of providing public housing, like here's an apartment, you can go here and live, they'd say, find an apartment on the market and then we will help supplement the rent. And what this did then is it meant that private building companies would still construct housing because they wouldn't lose any money. And at the same time, the state started to help those who couldn't make ends meet by assisting them with their rent payments. And the big change for immigrants happened in 1971 when a new Tenancy Protection Act extended those same housing subsidies to immigrants, even though they weren't formal West German citizens. So it didn't matter now that you weren't from West Germany, you could now receive state aid. I'm a firm believer that housing subsidies really can help improve the culture and also the economy of the local surrounding areas that they're implemented in. So that's great that they had the wisdom to see that that was going to be something that would help them. 
As we're wrapping up this interview, I wanted to hear a little more about your personal experiences when you visited these cities. What was the thing that was probably the most impactful for you when you were visiting both Italy and Germany? Well, even though I've talked a lot about business and politics, I really got into this project for the people. Like, why would you engage in such a risky behavior when you could face jail time, eviction, and even deportation? So my favorite part was interacting with the people, especially those oral interviews I conducted. A lot of them said it was the happiest moment of their lives. And it's hard to put on paper how doing something together and fighting for one's rights really created a sense of community. And they would laugh and tell me stories about sharing food or setting up security details to try and protect themselves from police evictions or how they had to find solutions to educate their children or create markets in in order to have food and other sorts of resources. And I wish I could communicate here their sense of joy. And even in the midst of such a struggle, they felt like they found their people. And in the end, they didn't just gain housing, but I feel like they finally found a place to belong. That sounds like such an amazing and fulfilling experience. I love hearing our interviewees tell us about their experience with their interviewees. You're wrapping up your PhD, and I'm wondering, what do you want to do after? Do you want to go back to Germany and Italy and continue this research? I think housing is so important because it is one of our basic necessities. And I mean, it's not just Italy and Germany that face these issues. In in our own country, the U.S., we have a lot of interesting questions on our social policy and on our immigration policy. So I would love to continue studying this irregardless of geographical location. So I think it's such an important issue of how we care for each other and how we care for our communities. I would love to become a professor and continue teaching, but I'd also be happy to pursue research or enter the nonprofit housing sector. I agree with you that these housing issues don't just affect Italy and Germany, but they impact people all across the globe. Thank you for sharing all of that important information and research that you worked on during your dissertation here at Michigan State University, and best of luck towards your future work. Thanks for giving me the chance to share about my research. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.